following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, folks, let's find our way back to our seat. Go ahead and open your, your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Trust your morning's been going well. We all seem to be in good spirits. I'm going to have to talk about death this morning. It's not a fun subject to speak of, especially when the death is of the Son of God. All week I've been struggling under the weight of, of this particular passage. We preach Christ crucified every Sunday, but there's something unique about turning our attention to the actual record of Jesus' crucifixion that humbles us. And so I, I simply want to allow the weight of the text, the weight of this moment to rest on us this morning. And so if you feel a bit distraught or, or heavy under the burden, the reality of the death of Jesus, know that that is a good place to be, to consider yourself sinful and Christ's death necessary to forgive and to cleanse you of your sin. But by God's grace, we don't remain there at the foot of the cross. We go to the tomb and we celebrate his resurrection in just a few weeks. So know that the story doesn't end here this morning. Know that it doesn't end with Jesus' death or even his body being put in a tomb. It ends when Christ comes out of the tomb, fully alive. And our story in Christ begins in that moment. So though we must trek through the wilderness of the gory details of the death of Jesus, know that there is hope and glory that awaits us on the other side. We're going to begin reading in the second part of verse 16. Your Bible may already have broken that verse apart in the chapters, in the paragraphs. Jesus has just been arrested and brought before the Jewish councils and then escorted to Pilate and there was sentenced to be crucified. In verse 16, Pilate delivered him over to them, that is to the Jews, to be crucified. At the end of this reading, you're welcome to join me in giving thanks to God. I'll finish the reading of God's word and I'll say, thus is the word of the Lord. And you can say with me, thanks be to God, and we'll pray. So they took Jesus, and when he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, and also his tunic. 
but the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lost for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that, all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask God for your, your help this morning. It is an impossible task for any one of us to fully comprehend what is taking place in the death of Christ what it means for our souls and for the world and all that was accomplished in this final act of faithful obedience. But Lord, help us now in this moment to see clearly the purpose of Jesus' death. Through his suffering, you may find a faithful servant. And in his death, we may find life everlasting. Illuminate our minds, O Lord, by your Spirit, and teach us to obey. Let us walk in light of this truth and boldly proclaim that Christ has been crucified for the sins of the world. We ask this now in his name. Amen. When reflecting on the life and death of Jesus, theologians will often use the phrase active and passive obedience. They speak of Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience as Christ's work 
in fulfilling and obeying the Father in order to accomplish the purposes of redemption for us. Active obedience refers to Christ's positive fulfillment of the law in obedience to God. He did what the law commanded. He never broke the law nor sinned against God. He fulfilled it to the very end. He actively, positively fulfilled and obeyed God. His passive obedience, on the other hand, is not passive in the sense that you and I would now use the word as an inactive or uninvolved, but where we get the word passion. It refers to his suffering. So his passive obedience is all about the, the negative fulfillment of the law. That is, in Jesus' obedient going to the cross, he takes on the weight of God's wrath and judgment against those who have sinned against him. And both of these, his active obedience and his passive obedience, come together to form the work that Jesus does in both his life and in his death that enables you and I to receive his righteousness and to be justified by faith. Without his active or passive obedience, we do not have hope that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient, that we have any hope to live a faithful, obedient life on our own without the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. We need both active and passive obedience. But at this point in John's letter, we are beyond the active obedience of Christ. He has faithfully lived in submission to God's word and to his will. In the last week of his life, he has passively obeyed. He has given himself to suffering and persecution and here to death in obedience to the Father that we might receive the righteousness that he has accumulated. His passive obedience is essential to the salvation of sinners. Now to be sure, passive obedience is meritorious for us. We, we don't have salvation without it. We need his passive obedience as much as we need his active. The work of Christ's obedient suffering forms for us the, the bedrock of our faith, of our salvation, and without his passive obedience here, his willingness to go to the cross and endure suffering in submission to the will of the Father, without that, there is no pardon for sin. There's no penalty paid for your sin or mine. But it is the obedience of Christ that John here hones in on at the crucifixion, this passive obedience. And while he does not fully ignore the physicality of the cross, notice that the clear emphasis here is not on the nails. It is not on the beams of wood. It is not on the physical agony that Christ endures. The other Gospels do record this in greater detail, but John here hones in not on the physicality of the cross, but on the narrative of Christ's obedience on the cross. I trust that over the next two weeks, as we look forward to celebrating the resurrection, our minds and our hearts' attention and affection will be focused 
to reflect and meditate on the cross of Christ, particularly his obedience to endure it. Now, it may seem obvious to you and I that Christ was obedient, even obedient to death, especially if you've grown up in the church or you've been around Christian teaching for some time, obedience of Christ, even to the point of death, is lauded and celebrated, and, and it should be. But what may not be obvious is why this obedience is so important and why it's beneficial for us to slow down and consider the work of obedience itself. Our tendency is to rush past the work of obedience and celebrate the fruit of that obedience. Jesus' death which secures for par us pardon of sin. But the cross here reminds us that we should look upon it just as his mother and other disciples did so that we would know the cost of the fruit of his obedience. We can quickly understand that the result of Jesus' obedience is important, his death in our life. But why should we pause to consider the obedience itself. I'm going to give two quick reasons by means of introduction and then look more directly at the text. First is that while the death of Christ accomplishes salvation for us, it also offers us a picture of the suffering and endurance that we are called to emulate. We celebrate that on the cross Jesus' death accomplishes salvation for sinners. All those who had put their faith and trust and that work receives pardon for sin. But upon looking and considering and meditating on Jesus' obedience, there is a picture held out for us of the suffering and the kind of endurance that you and I as Christians are called to endure and to emulate. Two verses to support this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Peter writes, For what credit is it? If when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and you suffer for, for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, that is, to suffering for righteousness' sake, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Peter's writing to to suffering, persecuted Christians who need encouragement. And he says, Christ suffered for you. Follow in his footsteps. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul says, Jesus' suffering and his obedience in his suffering is our model and example in our life as Christians that we are to emulate. If you rush past the obedience of Jesus on the cross and celebrate just the victory, over the grave, then we miss what our eyes should focus on in the midst of our own suffering and our own distress. If we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely to us, we must not only consider Christ 
risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, but also him who was crucified for us and endured suffering on our behalf that we may emulate and follow in his steps. So in other words, Christ's obedience shows us how to live. The second reason it's worth pausing, reflecting on the obedience of Christ, is that it underscores the whole plan of redemptive history, which ties together thousands of years of promises and purposes outlined in the Bible. All of the events and purposes of God are fulfilled in Christ. And we get the picture when Jesus obediently goes to the cross. Without such obedience, the purposes of God would have failed. So Jesus fulfills those purposes and answers the promises through his obedience. And so we need to pause and reflect on the obedience of Christ so that we, in our own times of suffering, have an example to follow and so that we can get a better view of what God is and has been doing in the world from all time. It helps us make sense of the purposes and the promises of God that we may not fully understand. Christ's perfect obedience is our true north in the Christian life. So the main idea this morning would be this. Jesus' willing, faithful, and perfect obedience to the Father secures full salvation and pardon for sinners and grants freedom to live for God. Jesus' willing, faithful, and perfect obedience to the Father secures the full salvation and pardon of sinners and freedom to live for God. I want to explore just three distinguishing marks of the obedience of Christ. There's more in this text and certainly much more in this passage that we have time to think through. I want to encourage you over the next several weeks to spend time reading the cross and the crucifixion accounts here in the Gospels. But for now, three, three distinguishing marks of the obedience of Christ that shows for us how we are to live faithfully as Christ lives and walk in freedom and boldness to proclaim the goodness of God as Christ's death does. The first distinguishing mark of the obedience of Christ is that it was a willing obedience. It was a willing obedience. Notice what it says in verse 17, that Jesus went out from the court of Pilate, and John records that he bore his own cross to the place called Golgotha. And we know from other accounts that Jesus at some point fell and stumbled and couldn't carry his cross all the way to the hill. And so another man was conscripted in service to carry him or his cross to the site of the crucifixion. But John omits that intentionally. He's not deceiving or intending to say that Jesus indeed carried his cross the full way but is emphasizing that Jesus himself undertook the full pain of what he endured until he physically could not. He was a willing participant in his own death. We saw last week that he was willing to step in and give himself over to the authorities. He did not shrink back from the crucifixion. 
He did not shrink back from those who sought his life, but rather handed himself over. And he tells us in John chapter 10 that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord, and he will pick it back up again. As he tells his disciples that you must daily die to yourself and pick up your own cross and follow me. Here he shows us again as our model and example what it means to die and to carry our own cross. He has a willing obedience. He's laying down his own life. We see later on that he gives up his spirit to the Father. It is not taken from him. He is not murdered, John says. That is certainly the case. But Jesus gives up his spirit. The idea here that John wants us to understand is that Jesus, to the very last breath, is in control. He's never out of control. The crucified Son of God is still sovereign of the universe and is in control of every breath he takes until he dies. He lays down his life. He gives up his spirit. He will carry his cross. He will go and he alone. There is a willing obedience of Christ that we should ponder and meditate upon. And this shows to us the sovereignty of the Son of God. Fully sovereign over all things. That there is none outside of His control. Even those who would seek to crucify Him end up playing into the very hands and purposes of God. Those soldiers who gambled for his garments, unwittingly fulfill the scripture. Those who seek to pierce his side, unknowingly fulfill scripture as blood and water flow. All of this comes to reveal that Jesus remains sovereign, even as he suffers on the cross. Now how we square this theologically is difficult. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, fully God and fully man. The question of who and what dies on the cross at this point is beyond the scope of the sermon. And if Jake were here, I'd tell you to go talk to him about it. <laughs> what we recognize is that Jesus in his humanity really and actually dies. And he does so as the Son of God who willingly endures and suffers obediently to the point of death. This, this obedience, this willing obedience, is actually a demonstration of, of the resolute love of Christ for his people. Notice he was literally, as Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, 12, numbered among the transgressors. He was crucified between two other actual sinners. But Isaiah 53, 12 tells us that he was numbered among the transgressors. That he cast his lot with their iniquity. This is the Son of God, the sinless, innocent, perfect, righteous Son of God who numbers himself quite literally with other sinners. He dies for those next to whom he is crucified. This is resolute love that he would become like us and be numbered among us. This doesn't only demonstrate his love, but also demonstrates the worthiness of God. Jesus, above all, wants to point our attention and our affection to the Father. 
He has come from the Father to do the Father's will, that we might be reconciled by His death to the Father. The worthiness of God is here and at stake, and Jesus, by His own obedience, paints the picture that it is worth dying for to be reconciled to the Father. It is worth taking on the pains of the wrath of God that He might give to us the benefit of knowing the Father and being known by Him. So though obedience may be costly, friends, the reward is greater than any temporal comfort you may gain by avoiding suffering. If you experience any comfort at all, that is, just consider the story of Jonah, who thought he could avoid obedience to the Father by running in the other direction. And it didn't work out so well for him. And Jesus says, obedience, though costly, is worth it. To be known and to know the Father is worth every drop of blood that we might be purified and bought and brought into relationship with Him. So there is a willingness of Christ's obedience. The second distinguishing mark of the obedience of Christ is that it is a faithful obedience. It is a faithful obedience. By faithful, I mean that Christ's work was carried out in full faith and in full assurance of the truth of God's plans and purposes. Jesus understood that what he was accomplishing in his life and especially in his death was a part of God's plan. This plan which was forged with Christ in eternity past. And he resolved himself to execute all that was required of him to bring it about. He was faithful to the very end. He was a servant of his Father. He was faithful, I would put, in three ways. First, he was faithful to Scripture. You may have noticed in our text, there are at least four direct references to Old Testament prophecies. Psalm 22, which other Gospels record he has quoted directly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here he's quoting verse 18 of that passage. Psalm 69, verse 21. Exodus 12, verse 46, referring to the Passover lamb's bones not to be broken. And Zechariah 12, verse 10, about the shepherd of God being pierced for his people. Four direct references to prophecy fulfilled in the death of Jesus. Even in his own dying, Jesus was perfectly fulfilling the law. He was faithful to Scripture. He was faithful to Scripture because God's Word is true. And he believed in its promises. And he believed in what it would accomplish when he submitted himself to it. He clung to the promises of Scripture, just like you and I are to do. He believed in the Word of God that if he was obedient, even obedient to the point of death, all the promises would come true for his people. He understood what it meant when God made a promise to Abraham that the world would be blessed through his offspring, that he was that seed which would bless the world. He understood what it meant when God made a covenant with David that one from his lineage would sit on the throne of the kingdom forever and that he was that descendant. He knows what it means when God dwells among his people in the temple, that he himself would be the temple of God's people. 
He knows what it means when people come to worship in the tabernacle to be near to God, that he himself would be the very revelation of God to his people. In all of this, Jesus understood rightly, as we ought to, that all of Scripture culminates in him. It leads up to his incarnation, it climaxes in his death, and everything afterward points back to that that moment and that reality. Because God's word is true. And its promises, as well as its warnings, are real. And the cross demonstrates that we are to take God's word as truth. Every word of it. And of course, God's word is true because God is true. It is his character to be true and to be faithful to his word. And so what God has promised, he will bring to fruition. Christ was faithful to Scripture. Secondly, Christ was faithful even in His death to provide. His faithfulness was seen also in His provision. Notice there in verse 25 through 27, He speaks to His mother and to John, the disciple there whom He loved. And He takes pains, even unnecessary steps to care for His mother even in that moment. It brings to to reflection some of the other comments he made towards his mother earlier in the gospel. And here he looks upon his mom, not someone to be pitied, but a disciple to be cared for, his family. Even in death, Jesus looks to care, to the care and provision of others. He is a good shepherd. We see in other passages that he even prays for the forgiveness of those who have put him to death. He is faithful to provide even as he hangs on the cross. If it, and so if Jesus in his death provides for those whom he loves, how much more does he now provide for us in his glory? If while hanging on the cross he can pray for the forgiveness of those who put him there and he can ensure that his own mother is cared for and provided for, how much now? as he sits at the right hand of God, fully glorified and alive, cares for and provides for his people, and welcomes us into the household of God. He provides for us. And what has he provided? Well, of course, in his death, he provides the atonement for sin, the forgiveness against our sin. He provides his spirit, which is sent to us from the Father and the Son. He provides for us a family of faith, churches that we can be a part of, Communities in which we spend our lives loving and serving alongside of. He provides freedom in the gospel. In his very death, he gives to us freedom to live faithfully for God. He has provided all of this and so much more, even in his own death. And so friends, as you consider what he has provided, my question for you is then, how do you accept the provision of Christ? Do you struggle to take it and receive it as good news? Have you looked upon his death and received the gift of assurance, of pardon from your sin, the free offer of God's grace extended to you? Have you been welcomed into a family of faith? Have you made commitments to other Christians to live out and be a part of God's family here on earth? Have you walked in the freedom and the joy that it is to be known by God because your sins have been forgiven and therefore made steps to walk away and turn away from sin and walk faithfully in righteousness and obedience to the Father? All of this is provided for you through the Spirit because Jesus was obedient 
and faithful to provide? Are you struggling to accept this provision? Do you find it difficult to live fully in the reality of the provision of these graces? I encourage you to spend time asking God for help, relying on the Spirit to embrace and receive these gifts, God's grace to you in the faithful, willing obedience of Christ. So he's faithful to Scripture, faithful to provide, and lastly, he was faithful to endure. He was faithful to endure. Again, earlier in Isaiah 53, verse 7, we're told that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers, he was silent, and he opened not his mouth. Despite the fact that he, the Son of God, was being crucified by wicked men, he did not speak a word against them, but prayed for them and interceded on their behalf. In John 13, verse 1, earlier in the Gospel, he says that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus completed the race. He was faithful to endure. He loved his disciples to the very end. He tells Peter, just after he heals that, that who he had cut the ear of, I must drink the cup of God's wrath. He fully intends to drink every last bitter drop, and here he does, faithful to endure to the very end. So the faithfulness of Christ is a faithful obedience. There is a willing obedience. And lastly, Christ's obedience is a perfect obedience. It is a perfect obedience. Notice what he says. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And we had been given the wine of sour wine, Verse 30, he received the sour wine and said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. These three words are some of the most blessed words in all of Scripture. It is finished. He has accomplished all that the Father has sent him into the world to do. All of the will of the Father has been accomplished in Christ. He has completed the work of substitution and atonement. He has been for his people the Passover lamb. What has been accomplished? All that he has been sent to do. He has come to provide atonement for the sins of God's chosen people. He has come to cleanse them from their unrighteousness. He has come to be the source of redemption and reconciliation. And in his death and in his final breath, he has accomplished this task. It is finished. And this accomplishment or completion, the fulfillment of the work, means then that the entire enterprise of Christ's life, his entire mission, was successful. When he says it is finished, it is successfully finished. Not that it is over and he can't go on anymore, or that he gives up. It means that it is done. The work is done, completed, and fulfilled. Every single person for whom Christ has shed his blood and poured out his soul on the cross has and will be saved. It's finished. Consider 
what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28. He warns them to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He charges them to care for the church of God which he obtained or purchased with his own blood. Who did Jesus shed his blood for? His church. And so when those words are cried aloud, it is finished. It means he has paid the price in full. It's been paid. It is done. Not an ounce of blood has been reserved to account for the sins of the world. He gave it all for those who would believe. Again, Paul will say, speaking of marriage, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. The church has been purchased and bought by the blood of Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ and it is His, we are His, and He gave Himself up for us. So the words, the declaration that it is finished means that He has really, truly accomplished the work necessary that those words be true. That we really are the bride of Christ. Christian, that you really are Christ if indeed His work has been finished. He did not leave it undone, but it's been completed. And so we can be confident that has been successful. I want to end by way of three exhortations then, reflection of the perfect obedience of Christ. The finished work of Christ means, firstly, that there is nothing you can add to it. There is absolutely nothing you can add to the work of Christ that will gain you any greater favor or merit with the Lord. All that is needed to reconcile you to the Father is provided for in the blood of Jesus. The work is done. He has done it. There is nothing you can add to it. So friends, stop trying. And instead, start rejoicing that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin and has accomplished for you and secured for you all that is necessary for reconciliation with the Father and a life honoring the Father and obedience to His Word. You can rejoice in the fact that your salvation is not up to you. That you're keeping yourself in your faith is not up to you. That you're earning yourself to heaven is not up to you. That you're trying to pay off a debt you could never pay is not up to you. All of it is finished. And so the finished work of Christ means that you cannot add to it. And so you must stop striving. The writer of Hebrews will tell us to enter into the rest that Christ provides through his death. Rest from your works and your striving. Now, friends, you have be saying with me, I don't try to earn my salvation. I trust Christ for my salvation. But in practice, you and I regularly try to outperform our way into heaven. If not into heaven, then certainly into God's good graces. We recognize sometimes if God is disappointed at us, we have to make it right by doing something that he might be okay with. We know we messed up here, and so we're going to give a little more here. We were kind of nasty to our kids, and so we're going to give them ice cream later on. 
whatever spiritualized version of that we tend to do is actually undermining the sufficiency and the finality of Christ's work. If at any point we try to bring something of our own to get us merit with Christ, we undo the words that Christ here declares. Nothing can be added to it. And so you must drop from your hands anything you try to bring. As the hymn would tell us, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Do not try to bring your gold or your silver. Do not bring your good works or your character. Do not bring your philanthropy. Do not bring your neighborliness. Do not bring your intelligence or your philosophies. Do not bring anything but come. But those who have no money and buy, and those who have no food, eat and drink. The finished work of Christ means that there is nothing you can add. Secondly, the finished work of Christ means that it cannot be undone. Not only can you not add to the work of Christ, you cannot subtract from it. You cannot undo it by your sin. Thanks be to God. You cannot undo the finished work of Christ. So you can stop fearing that your sin will put you outside of the love of Christ if you've already been brought into it. If you are one of those for whom Christ has died, if you have been forgiven of your sins and cleansed from your unrighteousness because you have put your faith in Christ, you've looked upon the cross in your heart and said, that was for me, I give myself to Christ, there was nothing you can do to come outside of the hand of that. It cannot be undone. Your sin cannot undo it. Your wandering cannot undo it. Your negligence cannot undo it. God will keep you. The work is finished. So do not fear that God will bring reproach upon you and remove His Spirit from you. Some of us may need to hear and heed the warning, but the reality is that all of those who are in Christ are kept by God and will be in Christ until the very end. Yes, you will make mistakes. Yes, you will sin and dishonor God. You may even for a season come under the reproach of the church and be disciplined out. But if you are in Christ, He will bring you and restore you in time, in His own way. God's grace is greater than our sin, which means that His work of grace and the death of Christ can never be undone, no matter how hard we may fail or work against it. Have you ever found yourself fearful that you've gone past the point of no return? That this, this, this is the one where you can't come back from? I want you to take comfort in the fact that if you are a Christian, or if you're clinging to the hope of the finished work of Christ, that even that is forgiven. This is radical grace. And it's only possible because Christ was innocent and his death was perfect. Because the finished work of Christ is done, you cannot add to it or take away from it. And lastly, it means, the finished work of Christ means that you are free to live for God fully. Christ says He came to give life and life abundantly, which means even if you're forgiven, you must also live as forgiven sinners. Stop running from God, even in your life. Stop trying to do only the bare minimum, but rather live fully for God. Live life abundantly and boldly because Christ has done the work for you. Because you cannot add to it or take away from it, you have extreme freedom in Christ. To live as you ought. To live in a way that brings God glory. 
Despite your sin and struggle and failures, and there will be many, you are free to live for God and obey God in a way that you never could before. Christ's obedience, his perfect, willing, and faithful obedience grants for you the freedom to live faithfully to God. So what are we to do? We return to Philippians 2. Let's end there together. It is the obedience of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the church to work and live together in such a way that the obedience of Christ is manifested and is displayed and reflected in their life. You know the passage, Philippians chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant to you than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's going about to teach us how Christ secured for us and models for us. But he says this is yours. The reality in which you may live faithfully and fully and freely before God is because of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you have a desire, Christian, for your life to be lived to the glory of God in the name of Christ, then you must look to Christ in His perfect, willing, and faithful obedience that you may live in a way that reflects the reality that you've been saved. There are many ways this fleshes out, but the gifts that He's provided for us through His Spirit in the church helps us understand that this is what we must work towards having the same mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ, accomplished and secured for us through his obedience, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and amazed at the work of obedience of Christ. Perfect obedience. Obedience which we could never have accomplished. This is for just pure gospel. Jesus became for us sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He, in his obedience, made it possible not only for us to receive pardon and cleansing for our sin and our rebellion and hostility against you, but also that we may live freely and faithfully in obedience to you, 
as we look to Him. So let us set our eyes on Christ this morning and this week as we anticipate the resurrection which we celebrate not only each Sunday but especially on Easter. Let us first also consider the necessary suffering and obedience of Jesus which led to the cross. And as we consider this, Lord, humble us. Help us to acknowledge our sin that we have fought against your word and will and way. But in Christ we have received forgiveness through his obedience, his active and his passive obedience. We love you and give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Men of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Shame and scar